If you come into my office, um, you'll have to get through uh, a desk that is teeming with papers. Um, Some people are really organized with their paperwork, and then there's me. Um, I was told once, you know, an empty desk is the sign of an empty mind. My mind is not empty because my desk is never empty. There's always something on top of it that I'm fooling with or working with or that I forget there. Like, oh yeah, I need to do that now, don't I? So, but if you can wade past the papers on my desk, you'll see all my books. And there's, but there's a certain shelf on my bookshelf that has a lot of mementos, a lot of things from, from, from years past, a lot of little things I've been given, many of which are related to a certain university in our state that I won't talk about because I like my job. Um, but uh, you'll see on my desk, on my little memento shelf, you'll see two things that are interesting. One's a little figurine, and another's a baseball card of the same person, one of my heroes. I, I love Will Clark, uh, the baseball player for the Giants, and then also ironically played for Mississippi State. So come on, we can be one, can't we? we can't we all just can't we all just get along? Uh, but I love this is a baseball when a when a Will's. Not a rookie card, but pretty early on, a friend of mine gave me, and I have this along with that little figurine of him up on my shelf because I love, man, I love the San Francisco Giants. I love Will Clark. I love watching him play when I was a kid. I love the way he held the bat. I was a right-hander, but I love how he'd stand in there kind of swinging the bat back and forth. And I just, I always loved, loved, loved watching him play. I love watching the Giants play to this day. I mean, two years ago, Holly and I planned our vacation so that we could watch the Giants and Cardinals play baseball in St. Louis. I mean, that's Cardinals are her team, Giants are mine. That was just, it was, I love baseball so much. And I just loved him and the Giants so much. And when I was a kid, one of the best seasons and also one of the most frustrating seasons we had in the Giants was 1993. Because that was the year after we had signed Barry Bonds as a free agent. This is back before Barry began to... Um, experiment, shall we say, um, with things. And uh, he was young and skinny and a leadoff hitter at times. But, you know, we signed him as a free agent. The Giants should have won the West that year. And it was just, oh, it was so exciting. I loved that team and I loved Clark and Bonds. It was just so much fun because signing Barry Bonds as a free agent was just such a, such a big deal for the Giants. Um, and that's a thing we see in a lot of sports. This notion of free agency, you know, back in, the, back in the day, particularly in baseball, when a player was drafted or signed out of high school or college, they, they had a clause in their contract called the reserve clause. And the reserve clause basically meant this. When your contract ran out with the team, they held your rights even after that contract. So you were going to play for this team for the rest of your playing career. And if you got signed by the Yankees, that's great. If you got signed by... The Washington Senators, you know, bless your heart. I mean, it just, you know, it really, you were stuck with this one team for the rest of your career unless they released you or traded you. That's what it meant. And so in the 70s, some players took this to court saying that's not right. When our contract ends, we should have the freedom to move. It's un-American even. It's un-American to deny somebody this freedom. This freedom to, to move from team to team, this freedom, sign a contract with everyone to sign a contract with. We, we have this right as American citizens to be free. And if there's one thing that really is one of those common threads throughout all of American history, is this notion of freedom. 
You know, as Americans, we love our freedom. We are thankful for our freedom. We have this morning the freedom of religion. Y'all, there are brothers and sisters in Christ right now that are unable to worship publicly out of fear. There are, I don't know if you saw the story this past week, a, a, a Christian in Egypt was paraded through the streets naked and killed. And her crime was that she was a Christian. We are so blessed to have the freedom here that we have. And we never need to take that for granted. And we never need to stop praying for our brothers and sisters that do not have that same freedom. We are, we are so thankful for the, those freedoms we have in America. Freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. So many freedoms. We're so thankful for our soldiers and our men and women that protect these freedoms. So this notion of freedom is, is just an intrinsic value that we as American citizens just, in many ways, take for granted. It's just part of our DNA as Americans, this notion of freedom. Freedom to do what you want, to go where you want, to be who you want to be, all these type things, you know? That's who we are. And the text we read just now, we read an interesting story. A story about a, a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion was a, um, was a Roman uh, general, if you will. That general's probably not the right rank, but he was, he was a, a, a soldier of great importance. He, w- he would not have been the top commanding officer. There would have been somebody over him, but he also wasn't a private first class either. I mean, he, he, he was, had folks above him and folks below him. A Roman, uh, a Roman centurion was a very powerful very powerful person. And he was also a good man. We see in scripture, it says that the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, he is worthy. He is worthy of you healing his son. He is worthy of this. They said, this man, he loves our people. He has built our synagogue. He would have been called what was in the the culture called a God-fearer. That would have been a Gentile, someone who is not Jewish, but yet someone who was aware of Jewish customs and Jewish practices. He was someone who was aware of Jewish tradition and teaching. He would have been, in many ways, a, a Gentile follower of Yahweh. He would have, would have been aware of the Old Testament customs and the laws and these such things. In fact, we see it where it says, the Jewish leaders say, he built our synagogue. I have been in Capernaum. Not to this synagogue, because the one that's there now is not that one, but it's on the, on the same layout, and it's beautiful, and it's huge. The Jewish synagogue in Capernaum was one of the crown jewels of the Jewish synagogue system, if you will. It was a beautiful place. So this Roman centurion has spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort building the synagogue for the Jewish people. He was much beloved in this community. So much beloved, they told him, they told this man about Jesus. And they went to Jesus on his behalf. And y'all, Jews and Romans didn't do that back in the day. Jews and Romans did not do that back in the day. So if this was a man that the Jewish leaders so loved, they went to Jesus on his behalf. This tells you how loved he was, how respected he was, and how much a part of the community he was. So he was a Gentile, a Roman soldier that had this. So this happens. They come to Jesus. They say, hey, this is happening. We, we, you know, will you heal, heal the son? And Jesus says, of course. He goes to heal. He goes to heal the, 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 the servant. 
And then something happens. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Well, no, I take that back. Not one of my favorite verses. A verse that always takes me aback. A verse that always makes me stop. Makes me stop what I'm doing. Makes me stop what I'm thinking. And just stop. Because it said, Jesus is on the way. And the centurion sends more servants and says, no, 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 don't, don't, you don't have to come. I, I know you're an important man. He said, said this. He, see that, he said, I see that you too are a man set under authority. He said, I say to my servants, go, and they go. I say to my soldiers, come, and they come. This was a military man. He was used to having the men under him do what he said. If I say do this, they would do that. He's also used to when his commanding officer says, you do this, he does that. That's the way it worked. He submitted himself to the authority of his superior officers, and the officers underneath him submitted themselves to his authority. But notice what he says about Jesus. Notice what he says about Jesus. He says, I see that you too are a man set under authority. Whoa. What does that mean? That Jesus too is a man set under authority? I mean, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. It says in Colossians, he's the visible image of the invisible God. It says in the Bible that all things were made through him and for him and by him. But yet here it says that this centurion saw in Jesus a man who just like he was set under authority. What does that mean? Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, prayed under the tree, Lord, take this cup from me, but not what my will, but thine. It says in Philippians that Jesus Christ, though being the very nature of God, humbled himself to that servant and suffered and died. Jesus Christ, though being the very nature of God, being the very substance of God, being as John calls the Logos of God, being God himself, this is that Jesus Christ humbled himself and submitted himself to the will of the Father. And I don't like that. Because as a Christian, I'm supposed to follow God, follow what Jesus did. And I like being in control. Well, I don't really like being in control as long as everybody does what I tell them to do. I like being in control. I like being in charge. I, I like having control of my own destiny. I like doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I don't want to submit to the will of the Father. I want to do it my way. I want to do what I want to do. Even if I want to do it's destructive sometimes. It's kind of like when you're flying. You know, you, they, t- they tell you to put your seatbelt on. You're like, what's this going to do? Like, really, the plane's going to crash? And like, I survived. I had my seatbelt buckled, you know. 
Tim didn't put his seatbelt on. He didn't make it. You know, it, you're falling 30,000 feet in the air. What's that seatbelt going to do? You know, I want to be in the cockpit flying. Like, yeah, just give me, even though I know nothing about flying, I know nothing about flying. I'm a terrible driver on the ground. I can't imagine me in the air. It'd be awful. But I tell myself, if I can just get my hands on the wheel, I feel okay because I feel like I'm in control. I need to be like down the baggage claim, like not even near anything. You know, they don't want me near any of that stuff. I'll break it. But I feel like if I can just be in control, if I can just have control of it, it's going to be okay because then I've got it. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Because he knew that the only true path to freedom is to submit ourselves to God. We are not free agents. We we either submit ourselves to God or submit ourselves to our flesh. And only one road leads to life. Only one road leads to life, and as much as I don't want to do it, as much as I have bought into the myth of my own self-sufficiency, the only true path to freedom is to submit myself to God. Jesus Christ, though being the very nature of God, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, because he knew that was life. The centurion said, I see that you too are a man set under authority. I don't like that. (laughs) I don't want to do it. But yet I must. For that is the only path out there to life. Augustine wrote an interesting book in the fourth century, third or fourth century, called the City of God. Um, This happened in the early church. For the first 300 years, Christians were persecuted by the government. Uh, Christians had to be underground hiding. They were persecuted by the Roman government. Uh, They were persecuted by other religious religious groups. I mean, Christians, for the first 300 years of the church— it was tough, y'all. They, they met in catacombs. They met in tombs. They met in places where they could hide because they faced such opposition from their culture. By the way, we see the early church facing so much opposition from culture. Yet what did Paul tell Christians to do? Pray for your leaders. Pray for kings and leaders and principalities. Seek to live a godly and quiet life. Be a good citizen. Even though they might not like you, be a good citizen. So we see these first 300 years, the church faced all these struggles. Then something happened in 313. Constantine became a Christian. Constantine was a Roman general fighting a little Roman civil war. He becomes a Christian. He wins the battle. He becomes, he becomes Caesar. He becomes emperor. 320, um, Constantine tolerated Christianity. Basically said, okay, y'all, let's stop killing Christians. Which Christians were like, we agree with that. Let's stop killing Christians. 330, he... he makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. So at that point, when Christians became the official, became, became the official religion of Rome, Christians were out from underneath the, 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 the ground. They were 
above ground, building churches, building these beautiful things. And Christians began to take on leadership duties in Rome. Christians began to become important officials in Roman government. Christians began to have important roles in society. And so the question is, what do we do? As Christians, as leaders, what do we do in this society that we now have? We're now out from underneath, underneath the troubles. We're free. What do we do? And Augustine wrote this great book called The City of God. We said as Christians, we are members of two cities. We are, mem- we are citizens of the city of man, and we are citizens of the city of of God. We have dual citizenship as Christians. We are citizens of this nation in which we live, to which we have a responsibility. We are citizens of God's kingdom. So as those that have this dual citizenship, what are we to do? Well, first, we are to be good citizens of this nation. As Christians, we are not called to withdraw from the nation in which we live, but we are called to live out our lives fully, investing in the communities in which we live. We are called to be leaders in our communities, in our schools, in our, in our social clubs, in our churches, in our governments, wherever we are. We as Christians are called to take on ownership roles in our nation because we are citizens of this city of these cities around here, of this state, and of this nation. And it is our duty to work for the betterment of all who live in these places. We are supposed to be active, shaping things in these places. As Christians, we are not called to withdraw behind the walls of this church, but we are called to go forth and let our light shine before all men. So that our Father will receive the glory and the praise. We are called to make a difference. We are called to live fully and boldly with the gospel in our heart, living out as citizens of this nation. Our world needs us now as the church to be faithful citizens. Pray, vote, work, serve. When you're asked to take on a leadership capacity in some form in our society, pray about it first. And I don't just say that trivially. I mean actually pray about it. And if the Lord allows, serve. Because we need godly men and women with Christ in their hearts in every facet of our local, regional National connection. We are called to be good citizens of this nation. I've heard it said one time, I want to say it was Jefferson, but it might not be Jefferson. One of the founding fathers says the greatest title anyone can ever have is that of citizen of the United States of America. That's That's pretty true. We are given this title we're supposed to work for it. We're supposed to work with it. We're supposed to let this title of citizen of 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 the United States of America, citizen of this city of man, we're supposed to work with the passion of Christ to make it a better place. So that's one of our citizenships. But our second citizenship is much like it. We are citizens 
the city of God. We're called to do our duty, both as citizens of the city of man and citizens of the city of God. We are part of this body of Christ that is bigger than just St. Matthew's, but that is made up of all believers of all ages and nations and races, no matter where they find themselves, be they Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or Pentecostal or Presbyterian or whatever denomination that's out there, because we are all on God's team. And the church is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than just our church, but it's made up of those across the world that take on the name of Jesus Christ. And we are called as the church to be faithful. Our church needs you. Our church needs your gifts. Our church needs your service. Our church needs your giving. Our church needs you. You are a valuable part of this church, and we cannot do it without you. Just like a nation cannot stand if its citizens are not involved, a church cannot stand if its citizens, if its members are not involved. We need you. And just like as American citizens, or citizens of Madison or Ridgeland or Gluckstadt or Brandon or Clinton or wherever we find Jackson, wherever we find ourselves, just like our citizenship, just like our work as citizens is in essential for the running of that community, so is our citizenship, so is our membership in this church essential for the overall good health and the running of this church. We have a duty as citizens of the city of God and the city of man. We have a duty that we are called to live out each day of our lives. I had the blessing to speak to the youth last Sunday night. We were talking about summer and how crazy all of our schedules are going to be. Holly and I were looking over our schedule this past week, and I basically kind of said something to the effect of, well, I, I guess I'll see you in July. You know, that's kind of how our June looks, and that's not just us, it's everybody. So as I would talk to the youth about ways they can, you know, what, they, what can they do in this summer, I, I told them I, I had a, a spiritual a director, a, a mentor of mine, who we would meet together monthly and talk, and every conversation we ever ended, Jeff would end with these words. Read your Bible, pray, and stay connected to God's people. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? And I've tried since that time to live by those rules. Read my Bible, pray, and stay connected to God's people through worship, through service, through Sunday school, through small groups, through all these different avenues. It's part of our, if you will, our duty as citizens of the city of God. We have been given freedom. The Bible says, it is for freedom you have been set free. You are free in Christ. If the Lord has set you free, then you are free indeed. You are free. As an American citizen, as a city, as a member of the city of God. But don't use your freedom lightly. Don't use your freedom lightly. We all have responsibilities. We all have duties. The city of God, the city of man, they both need us to live into our duties. May we live boldly. May we live fully. May we live with joy in our hearts, in Christ, in our steps, and be salt and light no matter where we find ourselves. Let us pray.